Shalom, and thank you for listening to our podcast. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, the president and dean of Valley Beit Midrash. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning, bringing cutting-edge ideas and innovative and pluralistic Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and enjoy the program. drink four glasses of wine on Passover, and we all know that we pour a fifth glass of wine. Does anyone not have a cup for Elijah at their table? Yes, we all do this, right? But um, why do we? And he's never shown up. Well, are you sure? Okay. Well, if you think about it, there's a lot of cups that he's got to drink from, and you know, this might get lost, so you know, just a tiny, tiny bout. Anyway, um, where does this custom come from, this fifth cup? Um, why do people pour it? What does it have to do with Elijah? What does it have to do with us? Right? Those are the questions that I want to ask. And um, I think that we'll learn some interesting things along the way. And um, hopefully it'll be useful to you and your satyrs as well. We're going to look at um, a couple of texts at the beginning. And then we're going to go into more of a question and conversation type of mode. And then we'll look at one more set of texts at the end. Okay? We're all good? Great. Hold on to your hats. So um, the first text we'll look at is from Exodus chapter 6, verses 2 through 9. Um, and this is God speaking to Moses. This is toward the beginning of the whole Exodus story. And um, I'm going to read it in Hebrew and translate as I go. And you've got the English down below. Um, God spoke to Moses and said, I am Adonai. This is the beginning of the portion called Va'era. I can't help myself. I'm going to give you a little midrash along the way, okay? So do you notice how it says Va'yedaber Elohim? Isn't that a little surprising? What do you normally hear in the Torah? Va'yedaber? Exactly. So here we've got the different name for God. Adonai, you may know, is um, sort of the more personal name of God. Right? yud Hey vav it's the name that we never pronounce, right? Elohim is a more generic name that means like God, like any God, right? Elohim acherim, other gods, right? Now, in Jewish thought, Elohim is midat adin. It's the attribute of justice. It's the tough God, the God who tells us what to do, the judge. Adonai is the God of love, the God of mercy, the parent. In Avinu Malkinu, Adonai is going to be Avinu, our father and Malkino, our king, is going to be more like Adonai. Why is it that it, um, this parasha begins with the Midah of judgment spoke to Moses? Well, you'd have to look at the very end of the last portion, which Moses is whining, I'm sorry to say. Right? He says, God, why did you send me to Egypt? Ever since I got there, things have gotten worse and worse. You promised, you promised that you were going to send me there and it was all going to be good, and I was going to bring my stick, and we were going to take the people, and they'd all accept me, and Pharaoh would say, sure, go ahead, 
and we'd be gone. And instead, Pharaoh's making things miserable. We're miserable. The people hate me. They're not talking to me. They're telling me, why have you ruined our life? You've ruined our smell in front of the Egyptians. You made us stink, that's what they said. So Moses is complaining. And then the next thing is that God, in this judgmental way, the rabbis imagine God getting a little angry with Moses and saying, Chaval al-da'uvdin, I miss the old folks, meaning Abraham. I mean, I said to Abraham, Lech lecha, leave this wonderful land, you know, your land, right? And go somewhere. And did he say, where are we going? Do they have a pool, right? <laughs> no, he didn't ask me. And you know what? The minute he got there, I sent him off to Egypt. He didn't say, no, why am I going to Egypt? I just got here, right? And so on. I said to him, you're going to have a child. He has a child. I say, sacrifice the child. He says, okay, right? Abraham doesn't question me. That's not entirely fair to Abraham. Why is it that Moses is giving me such a hard time? Why isn't he more patient? You know? And so that's why Elohim, the judgmental version of God, speaks to Moses and says, you know what? Ani Adonai. And the commentaries say, I am, you can trust me. I'm going to fulfill my promises. Right? And then sometimes it's necessary to complain. I hate to say this because I'm a parent. I hate it when the kids complain, but they sometimes get what, you know, it's sometimes necessary. I'm a dean. My students complain. Sometimes they're wrong and unreasonable. Sometimes they're right and I have to act. And so here, it seems that Moses' complaint sort of opens up something in God. God responds, I appeared to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, the El Shaddai, with this name El Shaddai, the Mighty One. But I didn't let them know about my soft side, you know, this kinder side. But you know what? I kept my promises to them, my covenant. To give them the land of Canaan, the land where they lived. And now here's the beautiful part. And I'm hearing the screams of the children of Israel. How the Egyptians are enslaving them, but it's more like they're hurting them, right? And now I remember my covenant. The rabbis struggle with this. They say, There's no forgetfulness in God. Right? And yet we all know on the high holidays, you know, remember us for life. So what is that about? And in rabbinic theology, God is amenable to lobbying. It may not be the idea of God that the philosophers have, you know, as being this transcendent, you know, perfect uh, self, but the God of the Hebrew Bible is a very interactive God. We complain, sometimes God gets angry, but sometimes God listens. And in this case, the people are screaming and God hears. Lachen, therefore, verse 6, and morally of Israel, say to the children of Israel, Ani Adonai, I am the Lord. And now you'll see that some of the words are in bold in the Hebrew and in the English. So let's count them. Vehotseiti etchem, I will take you out. Hotseiti, it's from the word Yitziah. You may have heard of Yitziat Mitzrayim, the exodus from Egypt. Yitziah, that's a Yitziah over there. We got it. One, a couple over there. Uh, Yitzhiah is an exit, right? 
So I will take them out, or take you out, mitachet sivlot mitzvayim, from beneath the burdens of Egypt. Second verb, the hitzalti etchem me'avodotam. I will rescue you from their service. Third verb, the ga'alti etchem bizro'anetuyah. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, uvishvatim gedolim, with mighty signs. Fourth verse, verb, velakachti etchem li la'am. Beautiful. I will take you to be my people. The first three are all about removing them from danger. Right? The fourth one is about taking them to be close to God. And I will be your God. This is um, covenantal language. You are my people. I am your God. We are in relationship. Married, actually. Right? And so this is a very pithy but powerful statement of covenant, right? And then, vidatem, and then you will know, ki ani Adonai Elohechem, I, the Lord, your God, the one who took you out of Egypt. So there is an end goal here, which is education, knowledge of God. What is religion in Hebrew? Anyone know? In modern Hebrew, we say dat, dalid, taf. But it seems that in the Bible, religion is about knowing God. Dat Hashem. In Jeremiah, there are several places, uh, in Jeremiah chapter 9, where it says that the purpose of the relationship is that the people will know that God cares for the poor, and when you care for the poor, then you will know how God thinks in the world. Right? I just spoke about this in church this Sunday. I was invited to a, a Lenten Vespers service at Corpus Christi Church in Manhattan. Um, so uh, they wanted to hear about Abram Joshua Heschel, who was a famous professor of JTS and very popular among the Christians. So I spoke about the prophets. Anyway, so you see it here too. Knowledge of God, right, is that God takes people out of oppression, right? just want to stop for that a second. To know God is to see God being active in changing history. It's not, again, the God of the philosophers, you know, like a perfect, distant, you know, the principle of truth or kindness or something. This is an active God who notices suffering and does something about it. And to know God requires us to also do something about it. And that's why Passover is such a powerful holiday. Because we're not only telling a story of what was, we're trying to strengthen ourselves to do something now. But more on that later. All right, so notice now we're in verse 8. We've had our four verbs. We're out of Egypt. And now what? Veheveti etchem el ha'aretz. I will take you to the land. Asher nasati yadi otah. Which I've lifted my hand up to give it to Avraham Yitzhak Yaakov. Vinatati ota lachem I've given it to you as your inheritance, Ani Adonai. By Daber Moshe, Cain el Benesra, Veloshamu, Benesha, Moshe, Mikotsu, Rochme, Avadakasha. And he said this, but they didn't hear Moses because the people are too wiped out. They are oppressed, they are exhausted, they can't hear. Uh, I'm tempted to go on a digression. I'm going to give you a little digression. Why didn't the people listen to Moses? Because they were exhausted. They were suffering. Was there something wrong with the way Moses said it? According to this? No. But Moses, when he goes back to God, says, the people didn't hear me, and I have uncircumcised lips. 
Moses believes that the reason that the people didn't listen is because he's not a good speaker, because of his speech impediment. Do you know that in chapter 14 of Exodus, the last verse says, The people believed in God and in Moses. And the next verse is, Then Moses sang. The Svat Emet, a Hasidic writer, says that Moses couldn't speak when he believed the people weren't listening to him because they didn't believe in him. But when the people believed in him, he sang. And this is another important message about giving people confidence. You know, it's the, the core thing with parenting and with teaching is challenging our kids, challenging our students, giving them tasks that they'll fail in and learn from that's all good, but also telling them that you believe in them, that they can actually get it done, right? And that you see them in their successes. And then they can do tremendous things. All right. But that is a little digression. Any questions about this? You no, see, that was just very interesting. Yes? Because to try to be the Moses to your children uh, can be just as challenging as this story. Yeah. And Moses wasn't... This is frustrating. Moses didn't have great success with his own children, you know. Um, I mean, we don't really know much about Gershom and Eliezer. But um, you've got um, that crazy scene when the family gets reunited, you know, in Yitro, and Moses is leading the people, and he sees his wife and his sons, and what does he do? He then goes the other direction to the tent with Jethro to talk with the men, you know, the important stuff. And um, we could do bibliodrama, which is this whole method of sort of acting that out, you know, and uh, we used to do that at JTS with rabbinical students, say, like, you have to be careful that your kids know that you're their dad first, you know? Because there are a lot of people who own you, you know, and a lot of people who demand your attention, right? And, um, and it's a challenge, you know, but it's not impossible. So let's move on. I want to show you one more text. Now, this, that was a rabbinic, biblical text. Now, this is a rabbinic text. Um, you know, the Talmud, when we speak about the Talmud, we usually mean the Babylonian Talmud, which was edited in what today we would call Iraq, right? Um, in Mesopotamia, in somewhere around the 4th, 5th century, even actually a little beyond that, the 6th century. And you can think of the Jews in Babylonia as being like the American Jews of their time. They were very wealthy, they were very powerful, they had great universities or yeshivot, you know. Um, Whereas in Israel, it was more like Israel of 30 years ago, you know, things were poorer, there was more oppression from what was emerging as the Byzantine Empire. Still, a lot of early rabbinic literature was written in the land of Israel, and the Jerusalem Talmud was edited around 400, whereas the Babylonian Talmud kept going for another century or two. So the Babylonian Talmud is considered a more authoritative and more complete Talmud, but the Yerushalmi has some beautiful stuff in it. So here, this is a bit of a complicated text. Um, Then we go slowly, and... um, I want you to pay attention to the different interpretations of why we drink four cups of wine. Right? So, minayin la arba'a kosot. Why do we drink four cups? Rabbi Yochanan, b'shem Rabbi Benayu, keneged arba geulot. So, this first train of a tradition um, says, quoted by Rabbi Yochanan, is that it's because there are four languages of redemption in Exodus. And then it goes through and it quotes it. And say to them, Hotseiti, Lakachti, Hitzalti, Gaalti, Velakachti. So it quotes what we've just read. 
Rabbi Yishu ben Levi Amar, because actually, if you read the Pharaoh story starting in Genesis, he's always got a cup, right? It's one of his signs. He's always got a cup in his hand. This is the story of the butler. Um, the Pharaoh's cup is in my hand. I squeeze the grapes into the cup of Pharaoh. And I put the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Um, and then later on, and this is Joseph speaking in his dream interpretation to the butler, saying, you are going to once again put the cup of Pharaoh in his hands. So in that case, we drink the four cups to remind us of these four mentions of Pharaoh. So I want you to think. All right, we got Rabbi Yochanan's theory, it's about redemption. Now we've got this new theory that it's about the cup of Pharaoh. Why would we drink four cups to remember the cups of Pharaoh? You know, I'm going to stop there and get your opinions. Then we'll get into the next ones. All right, so what's the difference? If you're drinking four cups to remember the four languages of redemption right, versus the four cups of Pharaoh, what would they mean to you when you drink um, your cups of wine? The four cups of uh, uh, redemption are sort of positive. Right. Remembrance of Pharaoh four times would be negative. Yeah. Yeah, it's quite negative to be imagining yourself holding Pharaoh's cup. We on Passover go through this flight of imagination to imagine ourselves as slaves. And every generation a person must see themselves as if they left Egypt. But is there some purpose to imagining ourselves as Pharaoh? Right? Yeah? Go ahead. I think it's more egotistical. Ah. I, I think it's saying, look what we've done. I see versus the four cups that we talked about prior, look what was done for us. Hmm. It's pretty easy to celebrate and go, you know, we've got the cup. Wow, yeah. That's interesting. And what you say reminds me of a verse in Deuteronomy, you know, ten yarum levavcha, your heart will soar, and you'll say, my might and my mighty hand has done all this. So you're reading it that way. That's interesting. Does anyone have a different interpretation of what it might mean to think of holding the four cups of Pharaoh? Well, we're drinking the four cups of Pharaoh. We are. So perhaps it's daring him to come after God. Ah, so you're sort of taking away his cup. Yeah. Nice. Anyone else? Other? I have, I have one other thought, which is imagining ourselves as an oppressor. Um, you know, like, it's a little bit like the Purim story where, uh, you know, we're doing this drinking. Who is it that did, organized all the drinking? It was, you know, Achashverus, you know, this king who was so erratic, you know, and so focused on his own pleasures and his own might and his own ego. Um, and that's what caused all this trouble. You know, Haman comes along and says, here, I have a, a plan, I'll give you some money. And it's like, sure, take my ring, do it, what? Go, go, right? And so we drink wine, we sort of become a little bit like our oppressor. And I, I think sometimes maybe it's ego, that's, that's one way of doing it. Maybe it's breaking the power of Pharaoh, but maybe it's even imagining ourselves as having power. And are there any people that we are sort of enslaving? You know, are we complicit? Uh, right, so the, the uh, terrorist 
hostages are sort of identified with their oppressor? Maybe. I'm thinking it more like self-critically um, that the Passover Seder has the power of opening our hearts to people who um, maybe not with intention, we're not intentionally oppressing them, but we might in fact be making things less safe for them. So I, it's just another idea I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that maybe that's what it could mean. Those are actually all interesting explanations. All right, let's keep going. Rabbi Levi Amar, Rabbi Levi says it's Keneged Arba'a Malchiot. He says it's about four kingdoms. So if you're writing in the rabbinic period and you're trying to think about the four major empires who've beaten you up good, right? Starting with the most recent, what would they be? The rabbis are living about 2,000 years ago, a little less, right? In Palestine, Israel, whatever. Are you talking about relatively modern times? No, I'm talking about... If you could imagine, all right, so you have to know a little ancient history. So the rabbis are living, the temple is destroyed by the Romans, that's your first hint, in 70 CE. So the rabbis are remembering the most recent, the fourth empire is the Roman Empire, which as the Roman Empire continues and becomes Christian, the rabbis start to see Christendom as the fourth empire. Right? But initially it's just the Roman Empire. So the third empire would be what? Greece, right? right? So Alexander the Great... Uh, comes and, and conquers the Middle East. And before them would be the Persians, right? and before them would be the Babylonians. Right? So those are the four empires that each invaded Israel. Right? So, and if you read the book of Daniel, which I recommend, I wrote it. Just kidding. <laughs> Daniel Nevin's got it. So anyway, um, I, he actually has a lot of imagery of these four kingdoms. You know? And um, so, anyway, so... That could be it. So in that case, drinking four cups says, you know, we Jews have suffered a lot of different empires. You know, they, the Babylonians destroyed the first temple and sent us into exile. The Persians, Cyrus the Great, let us go back, but then we almost got wiped out in the Purim story. The Greeks didn't persecute Jews so much, but they threatened us in a different way of Hellenization. You know, and if you're going to include in the Greeks the three successor empires to Alexander the Great, including the Seleucids, right? that's the Hanukkah story. Right? So they did oppress us a little bit. And then, of course, the Romans destroyed the temple. So um, he says the four cups are remembering four stages of oppression that are after the exodus of Egypt, taking us well throughout Jewish history. The Rabbanan Amri, but other rabbis say, Keneged Dalad Kosot Shal Puranut, Baruch Hu Atid Lahashkot Et Umot HaOlam. No, this is it. There are four times in the Bible where God says, I'm going to make them drink the cup of wrath. I like to drink a little glass of wine. Yeah. But you can all imagine moments in literature where a villain like forces someone to drink poison. Right? And so God says, God here says, they're these oppressive nations. I'm going to make them drink a cup of wrath. Drinking is a, usually a positive thing. Being made to drink is not such a positive thing, right? Um, and so it then goes through all these different verses. I'm not actually going to read them all to you, right? But then it says there's a final explanation that, no, I'm in the second to last line. It's, No, in the future, God is going to give the Jewish people four cups of comfort. Southern comfort, northern comfort, <laughs> Eastern, right? Um, 
and, and quoting from Psalm 16, Hashem menat chalki v'kosi, God is my portion and my cup. And um, then, of course, the famous line from Psalm 23, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows, which we say at funerals all the time. Um, and then the expression, a cup of salvation I will lift up, which we say in Havdalah, I lift up a cup of salvation. That appears twice. Right? So in that case, right, so let's, let's relate to those two versions. Four cups have to do with four times that God is going to punish the Gentile nations for oppressing us, or it's four cups of comfort for us that we survived. You know the joke, all Jewish holidays are the same. They tried to kill us, we survived, let's eat. Right? So... Um, so that's kind of this. And you know, there's a custom in a shiva house um, to drink some, some schnapps, typically, right? And it's not just like, I don't know if you've ever seen that. You go to a shiva house, and they used to always have shivas and, uh, and crown royal for some reason in the old days. Now we're upgraded to single malts, but um, they're making a comeback. Why? Because the Talmud actually says that there are four cups that you're supposed to drink and that mourners are supposed to drink. They said then they went ahead and made it 10, but that got a little much and people are getting drunk, so they went back to just four. Um, so then if you're drinking your four cups of wine, how is it helpful to you to think about this as I'm drinking against my enemies or I'm drinking in comfort? Do any of you relate to that? Yes? Well, I take that back to the conversation we had earlier today okay. about there's positive commandments and negative commandments. Right. Uh, and... You know, there, in, in many cases, there's a positive commandment and a negative commandment that are about the same thing. So they're mm -hmm. sort of the inverse of one another. Mm -hmm. so, and here we're talking about redemption and punishment and mm -hmm. comfort and punishment. Mm -hmm. and, and so I view that as some people, to some people, the stick is the, as opposed to the carrot, the stick is the thing yes. that gives them that causes them to act, or that they can relate to. Right. Uh, you know, we talk about yira, mm -hmm. meaning either fear mm -hmm. or awe. Mm -hmm. It's the separate. It's an opposite side of the coin. So, pe right. some people, to them, it's more meaningful mm -hmm. for for comfort and redemption, and they feel closer to God. Other people maybe feel God is going to protect me, and and. Uh, look out for me, mm -hmm. and that makes them feel closer to God. So we hit it on both sides so everybody can relate. Beautiful. You know, what you're saying makes me think also about the sort of foundations of contemporary Jewish identity. For some people, it's really about anti-Semitism. It's the stick, you know. It's, it's the Holocaust. It's anti-Semitism to this day. It's all the, the challenges, and we have to stand up for ourselves, and and Israel is also about it being a, a haven, a refuge, you know? Whereas for other people, their Jewish identity is much more of the sort of the joy, you know, of not only having survived, but thriving, you know, and, and building uh, an exciting, dignified Jewish life, you know? And um, we didn't let them uh, win, you know? And we're going to not be warped by hatred, we're going to allow ourselves to be healthy, you know, and we're going to try to get out of a PTSD type of spirituality and get into a, a sort of a, a loving, positive one. 
Anyway, so you've got these different theories for the four cups, and what did we learn about the fifth cup? Nothing. It wasn't a, I guess it was a trick question, right? So um, we do have a, one more explanation here, which is in a different source. I put it as this little footnote, so it's impossibly small print, but um, my arm is just long enough to allow me to read this. So um, this is in a midrash called Sikta Zutrata, and it says, Keneged Dalad Zichiot Adam. And I like this one a lot. Why do we drink four cups of wine? Because it reminds us of the four sources of strength that got our ancestors through Egypt. They were survivors. What were they? Right. They didn't change their language. They continued to have a distinctive Jewish language. Maybe Hebrew, or maybe it was just a way of speaking in the world. They didn't change their clothing. In other words, these two are really about, they didn't assimilate completely. Velo gilu, oh that's nice, lo gilu et sodam. They didn't share their secrets. I don't know what that means. What do you think that means? I don't know, it's a secret, I guess. But they have a proof for it. Dichtiv um, It says that women asked um, from their neighbors. Um, now, what that was really talking about was when they left, they went to the regular Egyptians and they said, we're leaving, I need some help, you know, give me some stuff. You guys have been bad to us. And they, they got it. But it seems to be saying that they were talking to each other and sharing their secrets. The women had the secrets. Um, you know that one of the great themes of, of the Midrash is that the exodus happened because of the women, not because of the men. Even though Moses gets a lot of airtime, the, the way the rabbi said is, Bizchut nashim atzitkaniyot because of the merit of those righteous women of that generation, that Israel was redeemed. And there are many midrashim about that, that they, um, the men were exhausted from their labor and said, what's the point of continuing? You know, and their wives said, no, we need to have a family. You need to have sex with me. The women are saying to their husbands, you know, um, I don't care if it looks hopeless. We're going to continue life. You know, and you think about uh, in the DP camps in 1945 and 46, you know, where all these refugees were, they had the highest fertility rate in the world, you know, and, and it's amazing to imagine to come through the Shoah and say, that's not the end. This can't be the end. We're starting over. You know, what kind of strength does that take? And so they're saying that that's a cup, right? Men and are the head and the women are the neck. Yeah, <laughs> right, uh, to quote uh, my big fat Greek brother, right? Um, right? Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. I certainly am. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. And then the last one, Velo Bitlu Brit Mila. They didn't abandon Brit Mila, the covenant of flesh, right, even in Egypt. Now that one is going to be the hint for our fifth cup, right? It's not the fifth cup yet, but it's a hint. Because Elijah is the angel of the covenant. In the Brit Milah ceremony, we say, 
אליהו מלאך הברית, הנה שלחה לפניך, עמוד על ימיני ושמחני. אלייג'ה, פרופט אוף דה קובננט, here is yours lying before you. Stand by my right side and support me, says the, son, uh, says the Mohel. Why? You know, Elijah, who was a tough guy, right? Elijah, if you remember his story, he was always complaining. And he had a lot to complain about. The people were not keeping the covenant. They were worshiping Baal. They were, they were, they were oppressing the prophets of God. So Elijah runs away and goes to Chorov, to, to Mount Sinai. And God says to him, Malacha, What are you doing here, Elijah? He says, I've been very zealous. I'm the only one who's true to you. The people have abandoned the covenant. And God shows him, you know, the famous thing, the fire, the wind, and all that. And then the still small voice, again, what are you doing here, Elijah? He repeats his thing. That's when Elijah is sort of washed up as a prophet, when he can no longer defend the people, right? And according to one interpretation, God says, you know what, Elijah, here's the deal. The people have not abandoned the covenant. In fact, they're going to keep doing Brit Milah for a long time. And I'm sending you to every one of them. <laughs> You've got to go to everyone. And so one theory of why Elijah comes to every Brit Milah is to actually be moda, to, to sort of concede that, in fact, the people... Although he caught them at a bad moment. In fact, we've, we've not abandoned the covenant, right? So the Kos Shal Eliyahu, one theory is that it's saying that God, Elijah comes to see that the people are keeping the covenant. And there are a lot of connections between the Passover sacrifice and Brit Milah. First of all, an Arel, an uncircumcised male, is not allowed to eat the Korban Pesach, right? And so... You've got this idea that Elijah was associated with Brit Milah. It's also going to be associated with Passover. Then, of course, Passover is about a gu'ula, redemption, which takes a lot of might. And Elijah is considered the harbinger, you know, of the redemption. Um, it's going to bring the besorot tovot of Yeshua, bringing the positive. So, um, so anyway, so these are the texts we saw from Exodus. Gave us the four verbs. But notice that there is that fifth verse. I just want you to look at it one more time. I'm sorry. The third to last line, second to last line. I will bring you to the land. So what's your theory for why it is that we don't drink a fifth cup of wine? Yes, David? Does it say Mashiach? It says, when I bring you to the land. Well, that's what I'm saying. Okay. Is, uh, we'll, we'll come to the land when, when, it's, you know, it's, it, when it's time for all of us to mm-hmm. be redeemed. Okay. So you're saying you can be in the land but not be redeemed. All right. Well, I, I guess I'm, just take, I'm, take, I'm taking it to mean that... Um, that you, you, can, you can be in the land, that, that being in the land is, is at the time when, um, when all will be good. Uh-huh. And so... Uh, so this verse is a sign 
not just of being physically there, but of a time yeah. of complete redemption. Yeah. Okay, good. What else? I'm sure you're yeah. it up. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. So yeah. My wife gave me permission to say this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because you don't eat Santa's cookies. Explain, please. Uh, that cup is for Elijah. <laughs> ah. Okay. So we don't drink the fifth cup, you're saying, just because it's Elijah's cup, and so that would be disrespectful. Fair enough. But, but we've got this verse, and we just saw in the Talmud Yerushalmi that at least the first theory was the reason we drink four cups of wine is because there are four languages of redemption. And yet there's a fifth language of redemption here, right? And we're not drinking that fifth cup. And so maybe it really is, and this is, I think, a, a pretty good explanation, that it's just because... The first four describe something that happened in the past. The fifth one hasn't yet happened. True, 40 years later, the children of Israel did enter and conquer the land. True, for the next millennium, we basically lived in the land. True, we did get exiled and spent most of the next two millennia not in the land, although never completely not in the land, but mostly not. But now we're back. We have Medina Israel. Any one of us, there's still time to actually get on a flight if you want. Um, catch a Sunday flight, get to Israel Monday afternoon. You'd be, be there just in time for Seder. You could do it, right? Um, so why is it that we're still not drinking this? And then I, was, I have students in Israel, you know, so I, I wrote to one of them today. And I said, you know, Hashanah Hazot Yerushalayim. You know, this year you're in Jerusalem. You know, enjoy that. Right? And yet, when Jews are in Israel, even in Jerusalem, they still say Lashana Habab Yerushalayim. So, what do they mean by that? Lashana Habab Yerushalayim. If you're already in, you mean like next year too? Do you say like next year in Scottsdale? What is this about? Why, why have an undrunk cup? Why have a verse? Describing something that just never seems to happen. What is the benefit to that? Yeah, yeah? I think pretty, pretty much is the gentleman's name. I, David. David you and your name is Alan. Alan, thank you. Uh, I, I think, in the simplest form, our our work isn't over as it relates mm-hmm. to freedom. Good. As it relates to the pace of, mm-hmm. um, but since I'm talking, if I, I don't want to take you off course for okay. 30 seconds. All right. But a while back, mm-hmm. you talked about the fact that we were trying to practice our Judaism in a more positive way. Mm-hmm. More, more of the positive, mm-hmm. not so much of the negative. Right. Um, yet, especially when we're dealing with younger mm-hmm. children, that some at moments take this a little more seriously mm-hmm. during the Seder in the light of what they've learned about mm. going on in the world and the Holocaust, mm. what have you, how do you pull away from that? Mm. And that's a personal question that yeah. I'm asking you as yeah. a teacher. Well, I think that um, children have a great desire, they have a lot of fears, and they have a desire to see um, scary things. You know, so much of children's literature is about their anxieties and their fears of abandonment by parents, you know, of loss and many things. And, you know, I'm not a big fan of the Brothers Grimm stories, but there's a reason why children are exposed to difficult things because literature and religion both have the capacity to get them to 
in a controllable way, in a safe and supportive environment, to learn that the world is actually a broken place and that there are going, there are threats to freedom. But then you, it's all about how do you go from there? How do you build from there? You know, and by reassuring them that God loves us, by reassuring them that we are stronger than we realized, by reassuring them that we actually have strategies to survive in difficult times, and then by reminding them that actually we've got it pretty darn good sitting around our tables. We've got plenty of food, we've got our freedoms, and the other people who are really having a harder time. And we're telling our story not just to feel bad about our history, but to open our hearts. You know? And so I don't think you can do that entirely without looking at the darkness a bit. You know? If you're just going to live a life you know, of bliss, you know, then um, you won't wind up living a life of responsibility. You know? And I think that's ultimately what parents and teachers have to teach is responsibility. You know, we're trying to get people in a responsible way, a kind and supportive way to feel that they can, they have the strength to look at what's broken and to do something about it. I don't know. Is that, how is that? We're all working on this, right? We don't want to terrify the kids. You know, you, you think about the Holocaust survivors, many of whom refused to speak about their experiences in the war. And some of them, they just, with such force of will, rebuilt their life, you know, in America, in Israel, and other places. And why burden the younger generation? Let them grow up with more innocence, you know? But, um, and maybe it was also just, it was too painful for those people to speak about. And yet something was lost a little bit along the way, too. And some of those stories um, should have been shared, you know? So I think this is our national way of saying we are, we're going to honor that past, we're going to remember it, and we're going to build on it. Okay, so let's look. Now we're going to have our, like, our little symposium thing, and then we'll close out with a little more text study. All right? So, um, and then Q&A, whatever you want to talk about. So I wrote this little thing about, it's easy to say that we're, we're glad we're not slaves, but when we think about the fact that there are over 60, I heard it's actually 65 million estimated refugees in the world right now, um, which is, I think, 0.8% of the total population in the world. Yeah. Think about almost 1% of the world is, is homeless right now. Um, an astonishing number. Um, now, it's considered the largest number in Earth's history of people who are... But that's partially because the global population is so much larger now. Um, in any event, um, you've got these refugees all over the place, um, and so the four cups are pointing not only to the escape from immediate danger, but also to the spiritual security that, you know, you could have people here in Arizona, probably millions, right, who are, um, uh, who are here and they're safe, but they're not entirely secure. You know, they, uh, they don't have their legal status, you know, and they could be deported at a moment. So... Uh, I'm not getting to the politics of how you solve that problem because it's complicated. I don't actually have great answers. But I'm just thinking about the insecurity of people who are always terrified. They're going to have a car accident and someone will ask for their papers and then they'll be taken to the hospital and then they'll be taken to jail and 
out of the country. So there's that. And then where are we headed? And so um, one aspiration is the Messiah, David says, right? And in the Jewish imagination, the Mashiach will then lead to kibbutz galiyot, the ingathering of exiles, so that will be one people in one land once again. So I want to ask you a question, like when you think about redemption, when you think about what would have to change in order to drink that fifth cup, right, and to say we've arrived at the land, what categories of accomplishment feel most pressing to you? In other words, what is most broken about our current situation? Um, is it exile, right? And if so, then what are you going to do about that? Um, right? Is it public health? I put other things, social justice, righteous conduct. Is it a spiritual awakening? That's really, you know, in the Hasidic tradition, exile and redemption are not really about a physical movement. You know, exile you could think as being thrown out of the land and living elsewhere. But they said, no, exile is about being pushed away from God. You know? And redemption is about coming close to God again. Right? Darkness is alienation. Light um, is about sort of reconciliation. You know, and Elijah, which when we say his thing, here I'm sending you Elijah, my prophet, before the coming of the great day of the Lord. I think that's a bit... It, I, get it, I may have mashed it up a little bit, rather. Anyway, so um, it's on your, uh, the wall of your JCC that I exited today. Right? So, and he will bring the hearts of the parents to the children and the parts of the children to the parents. Um, so it's a spiritual thing. So I'm, I'm curious, when you think about what redemption would look like to you, yeah. And I'm suggesting that this is something to think about in the days before Passover. Um, really, we're not just, I don't want to just do this story every year. It's always about, yeah, we eat the matzah, we eat the mar, blah, blah, blah. And what's a uh, nice brisket, nice whatever. And then you bench and you sing Chad Gadya and you're done. Um, that's okay. But if it's going to be real, then I think we kind of have to do a little bit of work of application. What is it that we're worried about? What is it that we need to change? What would redemption look like to you? So I'm asking. Yes? Yes? You. And it doesn't have to be the one thing, but maybe one thing on this list or on your own list that is of particular concern to you now, this year for Pesach. So personal security and that second piece is very important to reach out and be a friend to someone they don't know yet. Yeah. You know, I um, this week on, on Wednesday, is that just yesterday? Yesterday, uh, we had a rally at JTS. It, we live on the edge of Harlem. You know, we're at Morningside Heights is the neighborhood. It's Broadway at 122nd, and that's the edge of Harlem. And so we we had a, a rally called. Stand, um, standing Uptown, like standing up, but standing uptown. And we, it was an interfaith, interracial rally for, for racial justice. 
And so we had Christians, Muslims, and Jews um, from many different organizations all standing together, listening to one another, singing together. And then they said, there are you know, hundreds and hundreds of people there. They said, turn around and introduce yourself to some people. You know, who are you standing with? And it was great. Like, you know, I met Imam Talib and, and Pastor Lisa Jenkins, and I met all sorts of people from the neighborhood I'd never met before. And um, it's a little harder, I think, when you're not in a walking, like, urban environment, you know. But it's actually, I can be in a subway car pressed up against you, you know, like trying not to touch and like swinging like this and not making eye contact, God forbid, you know. And, and we might be, you know, centimeters apart and yet still not be any closer in communication than people who are in cars driving in opposite directions. All right, so that's one good, I bought you other people time. Anyone else here? Something? So, Go ahead. I don't know if I'm answering it right, but I'm always reminded of how strangely beautiful people were to each other after 9-11. Mm-hmm. And I would love for us to be like that always, without the 9-11. <laughs> but how to get there, I don't know. Well, what do you think it was and that, I mean, obviously we had a whole... I been think shaken. Yeah. People stopped caring about things that really weren't that important, mm-hmm. and they remember. They, they knew it's like, yeah, that isn't important, and um, and they remembered what what was. It's just, you know, kindness, love, uh, friendship, family, all of that, and then slowly all that other stuff crept back in. I think for a moment we all felt this one. That's unfortunately not an easy thing to hold on for to. the world. Mm-hmm. The world to come to. It seems. It seems to me that what keeps the world in check mm-hmm. is the fear of what our negative capabilities are, mm-hmm. and not n- not not the reality of what did you would say, but Salam al mm-hmm. where we where, where we all just look at each other mm-hmm. and um, come together, not be. Be well, not because of the fear mm-hmm. of what will happen. Right. Mm. Yes? You talked about not making eye contact. Yeah. And for me, one of the things about making eye contact mm. is having a personal conversation, mm-hmm. whether even if it's not verbal, mm. even if it's just with the eyes. Right. And I think, I think there's mm. a lot of fear around having that personal connection with somebody who's even when they're right next to you in the Mm-hmm. You sort of expose you. What about this sort of spiritual type of level? You know, redemption not only as a political thing or as a social connection, but as a spiritual thing. Like what, what's broken, would you say, that needs to really be fixed? Maybe you could speak personally, but you could also say in terms of the, what you're observing in the community. Divisiveness, yeah. Well, this is clearly an important theme to, to most of you. So 
then the, let me ask, and we got Rav Shmuley here. I'm going to pull out of his laptop for a second also, which is to say, like, there are people building coalitions in this community, right? Robert Crane, I assume that guys are doing that too. So what are the more successful models of building connections across communities of faith, of race, of ethnicity, of language, all the divisions? Are there... Does the synagogue interact with any churches in the neighborhood, for instance? Yeah. Yeah, so we interact with churches in the neighborhood, mm-hmm. not as much as I think we're seeking to mm-hmm. in the future. Right? Uh-huh. Um, um, but I, I do know, so Rabbi Kaplan, having been in the community mm-hmm. for so long, having mm-hmm. grown up here and also mm-hmm. served as a rabbi here for so long, he's been able to, to forge these incredible relationships with leaders across the board. And, Mm-hmm. Rabbi Shmuley is far more focused on doing important work like mm-hmm. that. So dip over to the right here. Do you want to... <laughs> on the right? Okay, so you were telling me as we were driving around about um, a program in one of the schools with Muslim speakers coming into a Jewish school and how hard that was, right? So in, in, in some ways, you know... Uh, Getting into very big topics like refugees might be harder than like a simple socializing thing, you know, like where where people actually just sort of get to know each other. Like, could have a conversation about uh, an article that you read, you know, a cultural thing, uh, and uh, uh, music, you know, share music, share pastries. I don't know, like things like that. There is another group here. Uh, I'm forgetting the name of it, but it's Tri-Faith. We have uh, Muslims, Christians, and Jews, and we get mm-hmm. together annually and do a topic where we're learning from each mm-hmm. other the, on the Abrahamic religions. Um, and I, there's no judgment. There's nothing right, yeah. nothing wrong, just learning and accepting. And it's, it's beautiful. You know, there's a, a book that I contributed to a couple of years ago called Sharing the Well. And um, it's... Muslim and Jewish scholars each writing on the same topic from their own perspective. So I wrote an essay about Sadaka, and a Muslim scholar wrote an essay about also Sadaka, as they call it, right? And we went topic by topic in our respective traditions how and shared some of the core texts and practices and things like that. And it's available as a free download, I must say. Uh, Sharing the Well, Muslim, Jewish something... Um, it's on the JTS website somewhere, so you can get that. And, um, and you know, with Christians, we have a longer history, really, uh, especially Catholics and Jews. And you know, Jews get to speak first because we're the oldest. <laughs> I don't know. Then they get the last word, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, um, yeah, please. brought up music, so I thought yeah. I would share a fun story. Thank you. So our new building, which is right down the street, which Tom Brady can hit with a football, um, he'd be deflated, but nevertheless, he'd be <laughs> and, uh, so um, it's currently or it was owned by a church. Mm. And one of my first days going over there, I, I found my way into a music room, and it was just mm. lined with guitars. And the pastor was leading me around, and, and he said, uh, "Oh, I see that you're admiring the guitars. Do you play guitar?" And I said, "I'm I'm barely mediocre, but yeah." And he said, "Oh, why don't you take one down?" So I took down this beautiful guitar. And I played this song, and I said, maybe this is something that you guys have heard before. And I played the song Sanctuary. Mm-hmm. And it has these, these powerful words, oh, Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, mm-hmm. and true. And 
and uh, he said, how did you learn that song? And I said, well, it comes from a Jewish text about Sumi Midash, and, and, and it also comes from another text that opens up the Amidah, and the, the two of those together really, it's to prepare us for prayer. He goes, you do understand that that's our song. <laughs> I'm fine that you're borrowing it, but let's, let's be honest. So, um, so we had this really wonderful moment together. And it is their song, really. I mean, even though it's got these biblical connections, after all, it's their Bible too, right? So, um, you know, I, um, I had this first-year seminar for rabbinical students, and there was some intense conversation we had, and the student said, we should sing something. So a student said, all right, let's sing the sanctuary song. Oh, Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary. And... Um, one of my rabbinical students is a convert to Judaism, having grown up in the South in like a Baptist family, right? And he walked out. He's like... No, he walked out because that brought up really bad memories for him. Like, uh, yeah, he, he felt that there is a lot of um, pressure in evangelical circles to, for kids to conform, and he was questioning, and, and that song was all for him about being forced into this box. Yeah. And we were like, whoa, didn't see that coming. Just, I've sung that song in a really nice, like liberal circles for a long time, didn't know it had that, you know? And so, you know, one of the things uh, of Shmuley and I were talking about before is just about opening our eyes um, with sen- to see people and to, to hear their stories. And I think that's part of this too, you know, um, just asking, a Muslim family to share their story. You know, like, what's it like to be Muslim in Scottsdale? You know, um, and what, what's really good here? You know, and, and what's challenging, and, and how can I be helpful? You know, that, that kind of thing. Um, we were talking about it in a different context of uh, transgender issues, you know, like, there are more people that I'm meeting who are not conforming to, like, the gender binary, you know, that for... Most of us is so obvious and so natural, you know, but there are some people for whom it's just not, you know, and, and whose lives have been really um, challenged by that. And just, I don't really have any great wisdom. All I can say is I'm, I'm here to listen to your story, you know, and uh, try to learn. From, okay, we're going to learn a little more text and then we'll, we'll close out with that. So at the end of the Seder, we've got that little poem that we read, Chasal. Sidor Pesach, you know, uh, our Seder night has ended with its, our Seder tale has ended with its story, Night of Nights. We've traveled from Mitzrayim on the something Night of Nights. I don't know. I, my, my, the, the Haggadah I use has got it in a, in a little ditty. Um, where does that come from? So it, it turns out it was written in the Middle Ages um, by a, a rabbi named uh, Yosef Tov Elam. Uh, Tov Elam means good boy. Basically, Elam is a young man. Mm-hmm. Um, his name in French was Bonfil, right? So, uh, Bonfil, right? And so, um, so it's Tov Elam, right? And he was a, a Python, which is a poet. You know Piotim. Uh, you know a lot of them, actually. Um, that Unatana uh, Tokov is a Piot, for example, a liturgical poem. Um, he wrote a style of piyutim which were halachic. They were legal in nature. And he wrote a very long piyut for this Shabbat. Um, you might want to consider it for 
in Shul Shabbat. Um, there's a type of pew called a krova. It's a pew that is written for the Amidah prayer. And typically, you start the Amidah, Baruch HaTashem, Elokeinu V'Lehavateinu, Elohim and then Elohim V'Lehavateinu, and then it'll lead into a poem, like on the High Holidays, Misod Chachamim, Dat Medvinim, Eftachavhi, Lechalot, Lefanecha, B'Tfilad, Tachanunim, Right, so I open my mouth, I ask for, for permission, and so on. So um, his one goes through the whole Passover Seder, all the halachot that are involved, sort of giving a rendition of the Talmud from chapter 10 of Tractate Psachim in rhyming difficult medieval Hebrew. Right? And it ends up with chasal, uh, Seder Pesach. Uh, we've now completed our, our Passover Seder. But before he does it, he gets to this little passage about drinking a fifth cup of wine. So I'm going to read the Tosva. Uh, if you ever, you've all seen a page of Talmud? Have you all seen a page of, like, a traditional page of Talmud? Yes? No? You don't have to say yes. Um, well, if not, then one of these future ones got to open up a book, right? It's got the main text in the middle and commentaries on the sides. On the inner margin is always the commentary of Rashi, Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki, 1040 to 1105, lived in northern France. And then his students, the Tosafists, the, the add-ons, right, are on the outside margin, right? And so, um, anyway, so on page 117 of Pesachim, we read like this. Revi Omer Alav Halal In the Mishnah, Right, the earliest part of the Talmud, it says, on the fourth cup of wine, we say Halal Hagadol. Does anyone know what Halal Hagadol is? Right, so the middle is the Talmud, the inside column is Rashi, and the outside column is Tosfot. They say that Rashi is always on the inside, because if you, you know, this is a nice brand new book, right? But of course, the Middle Ages books got used and passed down for, for decades and centuries. And so sometimes the outer bits of the page would, would break off, you know? Mm. But you'd always have Rashi. So this Tosvot says um, about that, it says, oh, Halal HaGadol was starting to say, um, there's a psalm, Psalm 136, which has a refrain, Ki Le'olam Chasto, for great is his glory or his mercy, right? And it's 26 times, right? Praise God, God is good, his mercies are forever. 26 is an important number in Judaism because um, the, the sacred name yud heh vav adds up to 26. And so, you know, you've got a line of God's mercy for every name, number and so on. Anyway, it's called Halal Gadol, and there, there's a custom of singing it at the end of the Seder. Um, so the fourth cup, according to the Mishnah, you say over it, Halal HaGadol. He says, Revi Garcin and Velo Garcin Chamishi. He says, we, our custom is to read as the fourth. You say, Hal Gadol, on the fourth cup of wine, not the fifth. Ula Rav Yosef Tovelam, but according to Rabbi Joseph Bonfil, Shekatav Besidro Kim Alishtot Maim Ikanes, Im Cholehu O Istanes. Some there are who will drink water um, if they are sick or if they are feeble. What's going on here is you know you're not supposed to eat after the Afikoman. You all know that, right? Except maybe it's not true. 
Rabbi Saul Lieberman claimed that an afikomen maybe was not a reference to food, but to a practice. You can imagine like you're in a little town, you've been drinking, talking, schmoozing, singing. What do you want to do after all that time? Someone says, let's go get some fresh air. So what do you do? Everyone gets up unsteadily, and they sort of stumble out of the room, and they go down the street carousing. Their arms over each other's shoulders, they're singing, they're going through the town, right? That seems to have been a common custom in the Greek symposium, that they would follow the meal with a little refresher, right? And Lieberman thought that the afikomen was that. You don't go carousing after the Seder. You did your job, go to bed, right? <laughs> do the dishes, right? So, um, uh, but we take it to mean you're not allowed to eat anything after because the taste of that, that dry taste of the matzah should be in your mouth. Now, but some of us are like, I, I need to drink something. So can you drink water? Yes, if you're sick or you are istinis, which means like um, you're sensitive. V'ibai mishte chamra mishum ones, and if he really needs to drink wine because he just gotta, why does he gotta drink more wine? I don't know. I think this is actually an allusion to the, to the Megillah Shal Purim, um, where it says that the, the hashtia kadat ein ones, it says the drinking was according to, was it proper? No one forced it, you know, ein ones. Right? So maybe that's what this is going to say. Some people feel, I just have to have another cup of wine. If that's the case, then drink. Then, then you would wait to the fifth cup of wine to say halal gadol, if you're going to keep drinking. So now, the Tosfut says, this is surprising. Once they told us that we're not allowed to drink more, how could they say a fifth cup? Right? Didn't in the Talmud they say you should drink four cups of wine, not five cups of wine? Right? But on the other hand, drinking water doesn't actually get rid of the taste of the matzah, of matzah. The only thing you're really not supposed to do is eat other food, but drinking you're allowed to. But drinks are okay. We don't think you should forbid drinking more wine. So there's a medieval poem, and then there's a Talmud commentary that opens the door, as it were, to the idea of a fifth cup. It doesn't connect it to Elijah. It just says you could drink more. Now, you've got Rabbi Yosef Cairo in the Shulchan Aruch, um, I don't really want to go into the whole history of this because we'll, we're running out of time. So he says that um, you should uh, drink and say the Birkat Amazon, and then Rabbi uh, Moshe Isolis, the Polish um, scholar, says, He says, some people say that at this fourth cup, before you drink it, you should um, say, pour out your wrath on the, on the nations. Now remember... That is one of the verses that the Jerusalem Talmud mentioned as the four cups, right? The source of the four cups, one of them was the cup of wrath, which God is going to pour out on the nations, right? So that actually could be a little bit of a connection. As we're finishing the four cups, we're remembering not only the four stages of redemption, but also 
the four sort of forms of punishment of our oppressors. Okay, it's kind of dark. And we open the door. To remember that this is a night of watchfulness. And through this merit of our continuing to believe that things can change, then the Messiah will come. And he'll pour out God's wrath on those who deny God. This is our custom. Now, Rabbi Isleys doesn't say we drink a fifth cup, but in this little thing, he says, okay, there's another little thing I'm going to add at the end of the Seder. Right? And it seems to have to do with redemption, and it seems to have to do with Elijah. And now, the next century, and I like this a lot, you're going to be grossed out a little bit, though, I'm afraid. All right. You know, when you drink, do you drink the wine like all the way down to the bottom, or do you like drink most of it and then top it off? What's your custom? Ideally, you would actually finish the whole cup. Now, you're supposed to drink most of the wine. Rov kos. Their cups tended to be smaller. Right? So if you've got one of these big wine glasses and you fill it all the way, and then you have to drink most of it, you're going to be drunk by the second cup. Right? They used to have little cups. You have to drink a ravit, which is like a mouthful, okay, right? um, for each cup. So, um, but the thing is that when you finish the cup, it has to be empty before you pour the next one. Otherwise, it's not like you poured a full cup. Right? It was just like a half of a cup. Right? So what do you do if it's time to drink the fourth cup and you still have some wine in the third cup? What are you going to do with that wine? Drink it or the plant? Would you say feed it to a plant? <laughs> All right. So they had this custom. This guy is what we'll read about. They would just put a bowl on the table and people would dump their wine in the bowl. Think about it. So, lo yehakos pagum. Right. So the wine, the cup shouldn't be blemished. It shouldn't be uh, deficient. And if some still is left from his drinking, you should pour it back into the mixing bowl. We buy our wine in bottles. It's clarified. It's just right. You know, you let it air a little bit, you drink it. That's not how they had their wine. Their wine was very concentrated. Right? And you may have seen this in the Greeks. They had mixing bowls. So the whole thing of serving wine was they would put the wine concentrate, they would add water, just the right amount, they would mix it up, and then from that mixing bowl they would pour into the people. Right? So here they would dump their wine back into the, the common, the community mixing bowl. Right? Think of it more like um, sangria. You know how they have that big vat of sangria? That, that's how you would be drinking. You know, they mix everything in like that. Right? Um, so he says... Uh, then you should go back and fill up your cup. And he says, blah, 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 you do this with all your four cups. Um, all right. And then he says, the year end, it could be, maybe this is what those Ashkenazim are up to. Right? He's a Turkish guy, right? He says, that they put an empty cup in the middle of the table. Right? other than the cups that those who are sitting at the table are needing for themselves, that they would empty up out the cups of those who are sitting there when they didn't finish their cup and it's time for the next glass. 
Koshal Eliyahu, and they call this the cup of Elijah, right? Hanavi Zacholatov, the Elijah the prophet of blessed memory. Vihineni Haminagazer Vechen Aninoheg, right? And I, I like this custom, I do it. Strange thing for an Ashkenazi to admit he's doing a, a Sephardi to admit he's doing an Ashkenazi custom, right? In fact, what I do is during the meal, the Shulchan Orech, you know, people have dumped their extra wine there. I'll say, I'll have some of that. And he drinks some of that for his, his dining wine. And then when it's time for the fourth, third and fourth cup, he pours out. It's a little different than what, um, what he described above. So... Um, this seems to be the earliest text that I could find about Elijah's cup. Now, here's what I like about it. Um, I don't love the hygienics of it, you know. I'm not sure how many of you would really like to have people drinking half a glass, pouring it back in, and then pouring it back in. Um, uh, I told some students about it this week, and they said it's like in the wedding. You know, at the end of a wedding, we do these seven blessings, and uh, at, during Birkat Hamazon, you take two glups of wine that have been blessed, and you, you mix them together, and then you mix them back into another bowl, so it gives the chatan and the kalah to drink. Right. So um, I don't love that. But what I do love is this idea that the redemption requires all of our input. You know, that we've got an empty vessel, and we each give up a little of our own bounty, and we put it together, and we sort of diminish. It's a little bit like an... Uh, reference back to the pouring out of the ten drops for the ten plagues. But here, instead of being a, a sorrow for what was, it's an anticipation of what may yet be. Right? It's a, a chiastic structure, to use a fancy literary term of an ABBA, you know, coming back to where you started. You know? And so you've got... Um, so you pour out this wine, and it's a way of saying all of us together are going to fill up the cup of Elijah, and that cup will be a cup of blessing. And so, why don't we drink the fifth cup? Well, it's because it doesn't belong to any one of us, I think. You know, it belongs to us collectively, you know, and redemption is not going to come when one amazing person um, saves everybody, right? We still refer to the Mashiach as an individual because it's, like, easier to contemplate, like, one person, but the reality is that real change requires mass collective action. You know, so for me, Passover ultimately is going to be about the need for collective action. And um, so I hope that these texts, maybe you can refer to them in some way in your Seder. Maybe they'll, you'll say, oh, I heard where that we got this thing from. You know, but I hope that it will also inspire you to make part of your Seder be focused on what are the problems that we are trying to solve? What does redemption look like in our mind? And maybe to ask people to say, what would a redeemed world look like? We know what John Lennon's idea, his imagination was. But what would you imagine, you know? And, um, and then what are the things that we can do symbolized by pouring out the wine? And it is a nice custom not to pour the wine from a bottle, but to ask everybody um, to pour a little bit of their third cup into the cup of Elijah, right? Yeah, Alan. The cultural thing that people that practice this to do with that fifth cup other than just dumping it down? Like yeah, the only explanation I've seen, you know, I did look into that, was that um, 
Some people would pour the cup of Elijah back into the serving utensil, you know, and then use it to make Kiddush on the next day, on, um, you know, on the day of Yom Tov. So that that's, feels better than just dumping it down the sink, doesn't it? But, um, it was a lot of work and thought just to just dump it down the sink. Yeah. So that's the only thing I got. <laughs> Maybe the plant. <laughs> All right. Any questions about that? Any comments anyone has? All right. Well, um, I thank you all for coming tonight. I wish you all a Chag Pesach Kasher V'Sameach. Happy and kosher. And may we all have a come a little closer to the Gulash Lema, you know, to this uh, total redemption. And uh, maybe Elijah really is alive in us, you know, in that way. Okay. Thank you. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you've just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to Valley Beit Midrash to support the expansion of meaningful Jewish education. Thank you so much for listening.